Cactus and Venue, welcome. We are all going to have our time in the Word now. And, you know, as I was thinking this week about what we're going to be studying as we continue on in the book of Galatians this week, I thought, you know, sometimes the Bible takes us down a, a, a rather bumpy road and one that we might not want to go down. I think many of us have had that experience where we read things in the Bible that are like really hard to, to understand, let alone digest into our spiritual lives, and, and we'd almost rather not read it. So, for instance, when the Bible talks about Judas, one of Jesus' beloved disciples, and how he betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide, well, that's kind of not a very flowery thing to want to read about and talk about. Or how about when you're reading the Old Testament and you read about mass genocide among Israel and warring nations and you're like, how do you, how do you make sense of that? Or when you're reading Romans chapter 11 and you're reading about God's amazing unconditional election of his saints and you go, how does that fit into my worldview? I mean, there, there's lots of things that you read in the Bible that, that, that you just are hard to make sense of for our finite minds, let alone digest into our worldview. And yet, as you and I also know, these are precisely the things that we need to do because they are in the Bible for crying out loud. And for 2,000 years, the Bible has been the sole source of spiritual truth for followers of Jesus. It's a source of truth for us as Christians. And so go down the bumpy road we must, even when sometimes it's a difficult road to traverse. And the reason we do it is because we've also found by experience that when we go down the bumpy road of thinking that the Bible takes us down, we're glad where it ends up taking us, right? We're glad when we get to the end of that road because we find, as only God could do, that it's always good for our souls to work through the heavy lifting and get to the other end. That's so an example would be if your child or your grandchild needs, say, a periodic shot or maybe even more so bring a treatment program for an illness that he or she has, what do you do? You go to the doctor. And though it's a painful and arduous process for your child or grandchild or you, we all know that you need to do that because if you don't, your child's not going to get well. And so we've learned that pain sometimes is part of the process toward healing in, in, in our kids' lives. And God says it's the same with him. There are times that we need not shy away from the difficult teachings of the Bible because if we do, we rob ourselves, even going down that bumpy road of what God has for us. And the reason that this is important this morning is because as you and I follow the flow and logic of the New Testament book of Galatians, the book we're studying this year at our church, it takes us down a road this morning that will surely be good for our souls and our understanding of God and his economy, but it's a bumpy road to be sure. And so let me read for you what I'm talking about. If you brought a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 8 through 11, just four verses, and essentially park in front of these this morning. Cactus and Venue, if you brought a Bible, open up to there now. If you didn't bring a Bible, it should be on your outline, in your bulletin, or look up here on the screen. So let's all get this in front of us and read together. Follow along as I read. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were, in, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. 
Now, I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, Jamie, how is this hard or difficult? I mean, tough words, yes, kind of sobering, and similar to what you talked about last week with Christians falling back into wrong ways of thinking, but how are these words comparable to Judas or genocide or even God's view of election? Here's why. When you look closely at what these verses are essentially saying, folks, you will notice that they cut right across the grain of how our contemporary culture thinks about God and spiritual things. It's true. These words almost seem innocuous to you and I who maybe have been believers for a while. We're on the already convinced side of the fence. But when you look closely at what's being really truly said here, these words become a real stumbling block to our contemporary society. So though I'm going to argue that these words are spot on about God and His kingdom and hence life-giving to our souls, I also want to show you how we better be equipped as Christians to have an intelligent answer to some of the dilemmas that these precise words bring up. So let me show you what I mean. I, I, I noticed on your outline there that there are three points. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. There's only going to be one point today. And the reason is, I know, oh, the reason is, is because the outline is due by about midweek, but Jamie's sermon is not done till Saturday morning. So do you all understand what happens? Once in a blue moon, doesn't happen very often, I submit an outline, and then I just get going. And I'm spending Thursday and Friday and Saturday morning in prep, and I'm still on point one. And it's such a good point, it's so worth parking in front of that we're going to do that. So for those of you who get mild anxiety by not filling in all the blanks, <laughs> it's just not going to be your day. But you're going to like, you're going to like number one. So well, actually, you're not going to like number one at first, but then you're going to like it to go along. So here it is. Here's our main point. And that's that these passage, this passage is telling us that there is only one gospel. There's only one gospel. And though sobering, this excludes all other competing claims. Whoa. That's what this passage is essentially telling us. And now you can see why this is going to be a bumpy road for some, especially those who might be seeking the Lord uh, through His Word. Uh, before we go any further, I want to be clear on what's being said in, in this passage here. When you look more closely at verses 8 and 9, you will notice that it is essentially telling us two things. I'll put both of them up on the screen here. First, it's making clear that there was a time that you, if you are a follower of Jesus, there was a time that you didn't know God, but now you do know God, or as it says, He knows you. And the only thing that, that has made this possible is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying here initially, that a contrast is being made. It's hard to miss between not knowing God and knowing God, Be between your life B.C. and your life now A.D. And it's such a profound change that it uses a very common but powerful Greek word here, thrice repeated in verses 8 and 9, the Greek word gnosko that we translate to know here. So it says at one point you didn't know God. Now you do know God, or rather you are known by God. Thrice repeated, the word gnosko, and get this, that word means to know something by experience. It means to experience something. So it's not just head knowledge. It's not like saying, well, I know that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. That's not how it's using this word. It's using this word in the sense of that you know something so intimately that you had an experience with it. So, so it's knowing something in your head, your heart, and in your actions, in your will. 
So it's telling us that something has happened in a person's life here that has taken them from death to life, darkness to light, having no hope, to having hope eternal. A profound experience has happened to a person, a gnosko, and that experience has allowed this person to go from not knowing God to knowing God. That's what's being laid out here. And clearly in the context of the whole book of Galatians then, it's talking about the gospel. And though it doesn't mention the gospel here in verses 8 through 11, it does elsewhere. So look at the context of these verses. Look at the verses we studied last week, verses 4 through 7, right before 8 through 11 here, and look at what it says. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now here it is. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So as verse 9 in chapter 1 would say, this is the gospel that you received. It all fits together. The whole point of Galatians is that it's through faith alone and Christ alone, apart from works, that we experience salvation. And that's what these verses here, verses 8 and 9, are hammering home once again. The reality that there's been a life-altering experience, B.C. to A.D., and the only thing that has allowed that to happen is the gospel of Jesus Christ and your faith in Him. Now, believe it or not, that's the easy part understanding these, this passage here. That, that's kind of, kind of the, the, the softer side of it, if you will. Notice with me a second thing that verses 8 and 9 are making clear, and this is the one that begins to cut across the grain of our contemporary culture's view of spiritual life, and that is that these verses are also making clear that any competing view or experience that you had before you knew Jesus was at best a prelude to the real show and at worst, not the real thing. And, and, and again, that's the sobering part. This passage is also saying that any experience or view on a religious spiritual level that you had before you came to Christ in this world of ours was at best a prelude and at worst, it was legitimately falsifiable. And so look at how it says it here. It could not be more clear. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. It says that before you knew God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then it clarifies by saying the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Now, what you and I need to wrestle with here, I need you to put your thinking caps on, is what does it mean when it says that, that, that before we knew Christ, when we were part of the world system, we were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. What does that mean back then and even today? Well, well there's a famous resource that us pastors use called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, or TIDNIT for short, for us geeks that get into this. And the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is a classic resource on studying biblical literature, says that this phrase is essentially contrasting, look up here on the screen, gods that are so by their nature, meaning that they are God, and gods that become so by human positing. That, that, that's what this is getting at. So this phrase is basically telling us here that God is so by his very nature and the nature of his gospel, but all else are at best competing gods that are only so by human invention. 
And so when the Galatians were first reading this passage 2,000 years ago, they would get this right away. Because, you see, they came out of a Greek world. And the Greek, remember your Greek gods from mythology classes? You know, Zeus, Apollos, Aphrodite, uh, gods like that. And they were going, hey, hey, you know what? We are taught that those guys are real. Never saw them, never experienced them. Read Homer's Odyssey, that was about it. And, 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 and going, so they're obviously not real. That, that, that's what the, the Bible's saying here. They, they are by nature not gods. And then they might think of some of the Roman religions around them, some of the more animistic religions that would carve idols and worship these idols. As we see in the Old Testament, they'd go, yeah, boy, that stuff was just, that wasn't real. Those were not really gods. That was just a human invention. And, and so what it's saying here is that before they knew Christ, all that stuff that they were into were by very nature not gods. But what you and I need to wrestle with is how does that apply today? Because we read about Greek gods from 2,000 years ago and say, isn't that fanciful? And we read about Roman religions and animistic religions and go, gosh, we feel bad for people. They were that dumb to believe that stuff back then? And even today, there's some faraway places where they, where they do that. And we, we think, gosh, we're glad we're so much more sophisticated and educated than that. I mean, we're post-enlightenment, post-modern people, and so we're not into that. No, what we're into today is five major world religions that have arisen over the last 3,000 years. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. In addition, we have hundreds of hybrid religions out there today. Many of you have heard of New, new Age spirituality where it combines Eastern mysticism with Western philosophy. Or how about universal Unitarianism? which is still popular today, where they basically say all religions are after the same thing. All of them are legit, and so let's take the best of all of them and incorporate that into our worship services. But we even have secular worldviews that build upon a purely scientific understanding of the world. In fact, most scientists today would call themselves deists. And a deist is simply somebody who believes that there just might be a God out there but he certainly doesn't intervene in this world. He's not involved in the affairs of this world, and so he's essentially unknowable. Folks, don't miss this. Today, you and I live in a highly pluralistic society that has no end to spiritual and religious options. We even have an entire slate of secular and irreligious options, everything from humanism to evolutionary theory to secular political philosophy. I mean, maybe look at it this way. For those of you who like buffets, Kind of picture the spiritual choices out there today as kind of an endless buffet in which you can just walk through and pick what you want, mix and match to your heart's delight, and our world says to you, it's totally legit. And yet it's like the old phrase that somebody once said, that God created humankind in His image, and we decided to return the favor. Well, we're just inventing all these things into what we want God to be. And at the risk of sounding like a reductionist, but now we need to get to the heart of all this, what we need to realize is that all of our modern-day options today fit into the same biblical equation that God prepared for us 2,000 years ago, that these are by nature not God's, Compared to the gospel, they are only gods by human positing. In other words, it's no different from the Greek world. It's no different from the Roman world. Today, when you and I deal with all of the spiritual choices before us, the Bible comes along and in a respectful way basically says they are not true. 
The only thing that can take you from B.C. to A.D. is the gospel of Jesus Christ and all other competing claims by their very nature are not God's. They are excluded. That is clearly what's being taught here. And by the way, in multiple other places in the New Testament. And I know what some of you might be feeling and thinking at this point. You're feeling the heat. You're feeling the the, the obvious exclusivity being put forth here, and you might even be thinking, as I have thought over the years, well, isn't this awfully intolerant? I mean, isn't this narrow-minded? Isn't this kind of like exclusivity on steroids? I, I mean, calling the gospel true is one thing, but calling everything else by nature not gods and reducing them to the weak and, 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 and worthless elementary principles of the world, this is at best arrogant, and at worst, it's absurd. I mean, how in the world can Christians or anybody think like that? Folks, I wrestle with this. I, I mean, some of you don't seem to wrestle with this issue anymore today because you've been so insulated now within the life of your faith and your church, and in one sense, that's a good thing. But I'm telling you, try this thesis on a lost person this week, and you're going to find that they look at you like you're a nutcase or something like that. Like you actually believe that? You believe that Christianity has found the way that Christianity, that Jesus' way is the only way to heaven? you got to be kidding me. Out of all the choices out there today, what makes you think that you are right? In fact, I'm not even sure I want to have a discussion with you about something like that. Folks, I have wrestled with this over the years. As some of you know, I come from a very open-minded, inquisitive upbringing in which my father has historically prized academic freedom and the exchange of ideas as a value above all else. And so when I became a Christian just over 30 years ago, and by the way, I became a Christian due to a gnosis, an experience that I had with the risen Jesus. I didn't become a Christian because somebody argued me into the kingdom. I became a Christian, and that's for another story, because I had an experience with Christ that forever changed my life. But then I started reading the Bible, and I started reading, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I'm like going, whoa, that sounds awfully narrow-minded. I mean, you know, i got to tell people that. I mean, I, I believe in Jesus because he saved my soul, but he, he's the only way. And I read all these, these verses about the exclusivity of the gospel, and, and, and for 30 years I've been trying to how, say, how do we make sense of that in, in our multicultural, very tolerant, pluralistic society? Folks, we need to wrestle with this, and we need to have an intelligent, persuasive answer to our culture because it's a bold thing that we're saying to people. Do you all understand that? One of the most difficult things for me is that I, I deal with Christians all the time that when I kind of bait them and say, how do, how do you explain to people that, that Christianity is so exclusive, that it's the narrow way, the narrow road, that nobody comes to the Father but through Jesus, and this excludes all else. How do you explain that to people? And basically the answer I get is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And honestly, I sit there and think, that's it? That's all you've got? I, I mean, that's a wonderful little song that we teach our kindergartners. But if that's our answer as adults, then no wonder we're not getting traction with the 87% of Scottsdale that don't go to church. Amen? Because if our answer to them is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, I wouldn't be interested in hearing me either if that was the answer. So we need to have something more than that when we dare to put before them the exclusivity of the gospel message. And so what is that? And there's lots of direction I could have gone down this morning on, on the road that we're about to go down, but 
I just got to tell you, I've been helped a lot by authors that I've never met over the years. C.S. Lewis has helped me a lot in this area. And another guy that's helped me that actually is still alive, I've just never met him. I've read a lot of his books and writings and heard him speak, and I just love his posture toward this issue, is a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Some of you have heard of him. He's an Indian-born Christian apologist who converted to Christianity in his late teens in a country that is predominantly Hindu. And he has wrestled with this issue as well. In fact, he speaks a lot about how can Christianity be true in our tolerance-laden society, your tolerance-laden society. And he does a couple of things that just might help you and I today. It certainly helped me. But one of the first things he does is he makes a sharp and healthy distinction between, now don't miss this, what he calls the gospel's inclusivity of all people and its exclusivity of all competing world claims, worldview claims. The gospel's inclusivity of all people. In other words, it's a universal call open to all. 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants all men to be saved and all to come to repentance. So the gospel is inclusive of all people. It's the most inclusive entity on planet earth. And we need to make sure we continue to tell people that. God loves everybody and invites everybody to the same table through faith in Christ. But then, Ravi points out, once he has explained the inclusivity part, that truth by its very nature, if we're going to have any intelligent discussion on truth, has to have an exclusive aspect to it. I read an article just recently that he wrote just a few months ago on the, uh, exclusive na- in the clus- exclusivity of the gospel and the nature of truth in general. And I want you to look up here on the screen and, and look at one of the things he says in this article here. Now, I'll warn you, I had to read this like five times in order to fully get what he's saying because he's, he's a very intellectually precise, philosophical mind. But, but, but if you follow this, it, it's very helpful in what he's saying. And this is how he speaks on college campuses. This is how he speaks to heads of state. This is how he speaks to businessmen that haven't darkened the doors of church for years. This is what he does. He says, let us remember that it is the very nature of truth that presents us with this reality, the reality that the gospel is the only way to God. He says, truth by definition is exclusive. Everything cannot be true. If everything is true, then nothing is false. And if nothing is false, then it would also be true to say everything is false. Paul's right there. Do you understand what he's saying? Probably not. So let me explain to you. Because I had to read that like four or five times, tell my kids to leave the room so I could focus on what he was saying there. What he's saying here is that for us to even have an intelligent discussion on what true is, you have to know what's opposite false. If there is no such thing as falsehood, then you have no definition of true, right? Because if you do, then you might as well call everything true false, because if there is no opposite, then you have really no cogent definition. True only becomes true because something by its very nature is false. That's what he's saying there, and he's spot on. He goes on to say, we cannot have it both ways. One should not be surprised at the claims of exclusivity. The reality is, is that even those who deny truth's exclusivity, in effect, exclude those who do not deny it. Pause again. All he's saying there is if somebody says to you, you know, you say truth is exclusive, I say no, I say truth is not exclusive, ask that person, is that statement that you just said exclusive? Because if he says, he's in a double bind right there. Because if he says, yes, you got him. And, and if he says, no, then you're saying, okay, then all truth is not exclusive. You, you see what I'm saying? That, that's what, it's the same thing with, with, uh, with absolute values. If somebody says there is no such thing as absolute values, ask him if that statement is absolute. 
Because if they say yes, then they just admitted to an absolute value. If they say no, then say, I got gotcha. you. Now, now but, but we're not going to do it that way. I, I'll talk to you in a minute about how we're going to do this. He says, the truth quickly emerges. The law of non-contradiction does apply to reality. Two contradictory, two contradictory statements cannot be true both at the same time in the same sense. Thus, to deny the law of non-contradiction is to affirm it at the same time. You may as well talk about a one-ended stick as talk about truth being all-inclusive. Well, what's he doing here? He's simply trying to have an intelligent discussion with people. Now, don't miss this. On the nature of truth. That's where you have to start with somebody. If somebody is super defensive about the fact that the gospel seems narrow-minded, say, let's back up a little minute. Let's back up a minute. Let's just talk about truth in general and how we discover truth. And what Ravi is saying here is that when you start to talk about truth in general, one of the first laws that philosophers talk about is the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction basically works this way, folks. This is a great example to give people. If I say that my silver nine-year-old Nissan is right now in the parking lot in front of the church, and if I say simultaneously that my silver nine-year-old Nissan is not right now in the parking lot in front of the church, one of those statements has to be true, and the other one is false. By its very nature, two contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense. That, that is something every philosopher agrees on. And it's this way with all proposed statements of truth, whether it happens in poli-sci, math, science, or even in religion. And so it would be naive at best to think that all spiritual claims are equal. That's just not true, especially if they are saying different and contradictory things. And so to cut right to the point on this, if one spiritual truth claim posits that people are reincarnated after death based on good works or not good works that they did or didn't do, while another spiritual truth claim says that there is an eternal heaven after death that is only granted based on faith in the sacrificial death of God's eternal Son, then by necessity, both of these cannot be true. The law of non-contradiction excludes one of those truth claims. And please see, this isn't bashing another religion, in this case, Hinduism. And it's certainly not disrespecting those who would hold these things. One of the things I pointed out to people is that scientists and other disciplines do this every day. If you're in science, you're going to set up a hypothesis here. You're going to set up a competing hypothesis here. And many times, only one of them is going to be proven true. If you're in math theory, you do the same thing. If you're in a poli-sci class, you're going to do the same thing between Marxism and, say, capitalism. The reality is, is that we spend most of our time in academia honoring the law of non-contradiction, trying to find and understand truth. It's just that religion is very personal. Religion is very spiritual. Religion is a high-octane type of entity, and so we need to pull people back a little bit and remind them that it's still dealing with truth. And truth by its very nature, everybody admits this, is going to be exclusive. You know, even when I get to this point, some people say to me, yeah, okay, I get all that, Jamie, but are you honestly saying to me, I mean, how in the world can you say that there's only one way to heaven? I mean, isn't that just dumb? Can you give me any other example in the world of how there is only one way? And I love it when people say that. Yes, I can. 
I, I say to people, I give them this analogy. Uh, say for the sake of argument that you get one of these terrible cancers, these diseases that happens to people all the time, and your life has now been greatly, greatly threatened. In fact, pretty much over. And so, say for the sake of argument, you go to the famous Mayo Clinic up in Rochester, or say the Cleveland Clinic in, in uh, Cleveland, because you also want to watch the Browns at the same time. So you go, to, you go to Cleveland, to the famous Cleveland Clinic, and they say to you, we got good news. There is actually a newly discovered treatment program for your cancer, and it's going to be painful, it's going to be long, but, but we can do it, and it's the only way to save your life. But we really think it'll work. Now imagine what would happen if you said to a famous doctor at the Cleveland Clinic right at that point, you know what, I reject that because there can't be only one way. There's no way that could be true. In fact, I have a friend who says that herbs and oil will help me with my disease. I have a friend that tells me that there's a treatment program down in Mexico for this disease. I have a friend that tells me that if I would just go on this diet, that that would help me with my disease, all things that we hear. But the doc at the Cleveland Clinic will say, yeah, you know what, people do try all those things, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't try any of them, but I will tell you that they have a, a, a 0.5, <laughs> even less, percent rate of curing the cancer you have, no, no the best chance you have. The best chance you have is to go with the single treatment program that we have. Folks, this happens all the time. And nobody rejects that. Nobody calls that narrow-minded. Nobody says, nobody screams and cries foul. That they understand that that's the nature of how our world works many times on multiple levels. And this is exactly the truth with Christianity. It's inclusive of all people, all people. Come ye, come all, whoever so will is invited to drink of the water of Christ. But because it is a truth claim, and we need to help people understand this, by its very nature, because all truth claims work this way, it will be exclusive. And it's right at this point that Zacharias does a second thing that has made him such a sought-after Christian speaker and author, and that is that he says, while we're also vying for truth in the public realm, we need to always do so. Now I'm going to use his words with civility and cordiality. With civility and cordiality. I mentioned to you earlier that Zacharias is constantly invited to speak at secular universities and heads of state and to businessmen who never go to church and even to academicians who gave up on Christianity decades ago. He's constantly invited there. And he has the same message you and I do. It's a very, very evangelical message rooted in the historic Christian faith. And he doesn't back down from any of these issues. And yet he's continually invited there. And it's not just because he's smart. It's because he has the reputation of always engaging in discourse in a way that is civil and cordial, quite frankly, loving to those around him. And I would argue that that's precisely Christ-like. As you guys know, I'm a theologian by trade, and so I've read the Bible often. <laughs> and one of the things that I love about Jesus' style is that when you look closely at the gospel stories, when Jesus was dealing with lost people, with what the Bible calls tax collectors and sinners, you look close, he consistently treated them as those who were made in the image of God, highly valued by him, and hence deserving of his highest dignity and respect. You look at every story of Jesus dealing with a lost person, and you will see all that between the lines. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the rich young ruler in which Jesus said some hard things too, Jairus when he brought his sick daughter to him, Zacchaeus when he was high up in a tree, uh, the man with the demon-possessed boy in, in, in Mark, 
the man who was struggling with doubt and faith, even Pontius Pilate. You read that story again in John when Jesus was before Pontius on trial for his life. It was all about dignity and respect. Jesus was consistently respectful, caring, empathetic, other-centered, and kind, all within the realm of always telling people truth. And it's an amazing model for you and I. And I know how some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, Jamie, but Jesus was also angry at times. I mean, he kicked people out of the temple, and, and, he told, and he told Peter that he was Satan and to get behind him. And boy, the Pharisees, he called them vipers, and he, he called them whitewashed tombs. I mean, can I do that too? Well, let's break that down a minute. Isn't it interesting, all those examples? You look close at, at who Jesus reserved his anger for. And if you want to apply this, you can. It was almost always for the pastors of his day or his disciples. Isn't that interesting? It was the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus called a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs because they should have known better. And it was his disciples that he tended to be kind of hard on, those that were in his inner circle. But you look closely, he almost never used that type of tactic on the lost world. That's not how he treated the woman at the well. That's not how he treated Pontius Pilate. That's not how he approached all the people around him. I think Zacharias is on to something. When you and I deal with the lost world, civility and cordiality, what the Bible called love and respect, is the name of the game. And I really do think there's something in there for you and I. Here's what I want to walk, you to walk away with this morning, and Cactus and Venue, you as well. The gospel by its very nature is exclusive. And don't hear me saying anything else. We must hang on to that. It's a bumpy road to be sure, but at the end of that road is eternal life. <laughs> at the end of that road is God. And God has said, there is only one way I have reached out to you. It's a universal way, open to all, and it's found in Jesus Christ. I remember one of those humble things now one ever said when he was alive was when, you know, now taught at Yale and other places, and somebody once said, Henry, do you really believe that Christianity is the only way to God? And I love this humble answer. He said, well, it's the only way I have found. That might not be tough enough for some of you, but that just might be right for others of you. Cling to the exclusivity of the gospel. But as you're doing that, Please also understand how difficult this is for a complex world to comprehend, a world in which we have seen that has spent thousands of years setting up a veritable smorgasbord of religious and spiritual options and then smack the label that they're all equal. And, and though you and I should point out that truth is truth, and, and let's talk intelligently in the realm of truth, we need to remember still at the end of the day, people are going to feel insulted uh, and even at times belittled by what we're claiming, and I believe that it's civility and cordiality love that takes the edge off. It's that kind of discourse that allows us to reach into and win a fallen world. I've asked my dad if I can use this example, and he's given me complete freedom to do so. As many of you know, I uh, have had a bumpy road with my dad over the years. My, my dad really is a... Uh, a ruggedly thinking man, a Harvard-educated lawyer, and a guy who has some, some very liberal, inclusive views, especially about religion. In fact, one of the reasons I went to seminary, I don't think I've ever told you this, guys, years ago was because I wanted to go to seminary if for no other reason to be able to have an intelligent conversation with God or about God with my dad. 
because his religion library was the smallest part of his library, and his religion library had 2,000 books in it. He's widely read in religious issues, but also very, very liberal. He certainly does not believe that Jesus is the only way. And over the years, I, I've had a bumpy road with my dad. When I got out of seminary, I was better equipped academically to try to take him down, and that's what I tried to do. <laughs> and, and as some of you have found with family members, you know, you think you're doing all the right things and trying to take them down and, you know, show them what's Trump, but you also realize that you have a lot of your emotional baggage locked into it and your own hurts, and you're unaware of that, and so you're coming on too strong. And, boy, there were just times where my dad and I just went at it. And it was ugly. It was not good. And quite frankly, I was disrespectful. And so there was a period of about three years where I just didn't talk to the man. It was really hard on mom. But I just said, I don't want to talk to him. He's stubborn. He's bound for hell. And I just don't want to talk to him. And, and, and that's really hard for mom when she hears things like that. And I'll never forget, it was my dad actually that took the first step here in about the mid-90s when I was a pastor in Detroit. My dad wrote me one of the most beautiful, wonderful letters. And he basically said this. He said, you know, I know you got some issues from your childhood. I'm not going to apologize for it because I did the best I could. You need to grow up. That was the hard thing to hear, but he said that. That's him. I mean, he just, you know, it's tough. And then he said, and he said, you know what, and if we're going to have any relationship moving forward, and this was his key phrase, he said, we're going to have to learn to walk sensitively around the issues. That, that kind of jumped out at me, walk sensitively around the issues. He said, because if, if we don't, there's a good chance we're not going to have much of a relationship moving forward, and that's going to be tough on everybody, including mom. I remember reading that letter, and I said to the Lord, I said, God, I repent. I've been treating my dad with a lot of disrespect. I've not been good and kind to him, and he's spot on. I need to learn to walk sensitively around the issues, not ever pulling back, but I need to treat him kinder. For the last almost 20 years, I've spent at least every quarter, if not more often, with my parents, who you guys know are aging. They live in a small, small farming community in Ohio, and uh, I go in every quarter, and I tell you, the only thing my dad and I ever talk about is religion and politics. I mean, he has such an interest there. And I'd say about every other trip, halfway through the conversation, it starts to get heated. And I can always tell when it gets heated because mom leaves the room. And uh, honestly, I mean, she'll just kind of get up and just sort of walk out of the room like this. And, you know, and, and she really does. And I can just tell right then it's getting hot and my dad's getting angry and I'm starting to get forceful and, you know, and I'm hammering home. You guys be proud of me and hammering home the exclusivity of the gospel and da 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 and the cogency of a conservative worldview and yada, yada, yada. And, 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 and then I have to remind myself, be careful here. Be careful. He knows the truth. He knows where you stand. He knows what you believe. You're trying to have a dialogue to win him into a right understanding of Jesus. And, and so walk sensitively around the issue, issues. As Robbie would say, be cordial and be civil. I have to remind myself all the time, and that's just with my dad. See, I dream about what would happen if Christians were to start functioning more like this. Don't you? I mean, we're not always known for being civil and cordial, are we? We're known for fighting the culture wars. We're known for standing up for our own and what have you. And don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting we shouldn't fight for the culture wars. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't stand up for our own. You guys know me. But how we do that makes all the difference. The posture that we have relationally to those around us makes all the difference. And I believe, quite frankly, before God, we're held accountable just as much for the posture as we are for the content because Jesus sure modeled that for us. We unveiled a huge vision about a year ago that you all have pledged generously to called Compelled by Grace. 
Part of our vision is to set the table for future generations by redoing our campus, adding a couple more multi-sites, doing some significant church planting, and taking our international missions the next step as well. And we're going to be breaking ground here very soon on our campus. We've already announced our new multi-site pastor. We're moving on with that. But here's my point in mentioning this. As many of you are significantly a part of this, the whole point of this in a, in, a, in a big way is to reach our community and to set up future generations to reach our community. And the time begins now. A question I asked our staff the other day, our pastors, is, you know, it's tempting for those of us who are part of Compelled by Grace to say, let's just get through the next 18 months of our building process and then we'll start winning, building, and sending again. And I said, no, 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 no. Our big question is, how do we win, build, and send in the midst of all the disruption our campus is going to have here soon. I know one of the main ways we do it, and that's that if we all continue to keep a passion for those around us that don't know Jesus alive in our own hearts, and don't shy away from continuing to invite them to events that we have and to a Bible study that might be investigative, or even to church. Our cringe factor is fairly low. Invite them even to church. And then have an intelligent conversation with them at Starbucks in which you listen and ask curious questions, see them as human beings made in the image of God, walk sensitively around the issues, and then watch God use you as you continue to lay His truth, His exclusive truth, out lovingly to those before you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the words of Galatians 4 here that though a bumpy road to be sure for us to go down is a a road well worth going down. And Lord, many of us don't need to be convinced of that here today or at Cactus or at Venue because we've been down that road. We have found Jesus, or rather He has found us. And Lord, as a result of that, we're so grateful for the bumpy road. But God, we live in a culture, as we've talked about today, that doesn't get that. And they actually feel offended, if not scandalized by it. And so I pray, God, that as we cling to what the nature of truth is and try to have an intelligent discussion with them about that, as we remind them of the inclusivity of Jesus and his gospel and the love and grace offered in that, and then, Lord, as we back that up with our own civility and cordiality, always loving people with patience and kindness at the end of the day, God, would you use us? Would our Compelled by Grace thing not just be for us, but for this community that so desperately needs to see the light of Christ in and through even our church. So God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. We're excited to see where you lead us in the rest of Galatians as we go through it this fall. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.